You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gaston Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Well, amen. So good to be here with you today. If you will, go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 16, uh, verse 4b through 11. Again, that's John chapter 16, verse 4b through 11. So looking at the second half of verse 4 there, down through verse 11. And as you're turning there, I just want to share that one of my favorite Bible stories is in 2 Samuel 12. And by way of introduction, this kind of sets the stage for where we're going to be going today. In 2 Samuel 12, this is a story where the prophet Nathan goes to confront King David about his adultery with Bathsheba. Now remember, David was not where he was supposed to be. David was not out leading his armies. He stayed home and he saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof and he calls for her. They commit adultery and then she is pregnant. David would ultimately have her husband Uriah killed in battle and he takes her for his own wife. We recognize that this is really a dramatic sin on the part of one who was considered a man after God's own heart. And so in this moment, David has committed this grievous sin, and so God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David. And Nathan does this by telling a story. Nathan tells a story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has many flocks, and the poor man just has one little lamb. And that little lamb, it eats with him. It sleeps in the house with his family, and he loves it like a daughter. But in order to feed a guest, the rich man takes the poor man's lamb and kills it and prepares it for the guest. Now, as he's hearing this story, King David burns with anger and he shouts, As the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. And Nathan delivers this just powerful line. He says, You are the man. Nathan explains David's sin. He lays it all out. He says, this is what you have done. And David confesses in 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. David was a man under conviction. He was a man who knew clearly that he had sinned. Now the southern church term we use for his condition is that he had had his toes stepped on. Nearly broken off. He was convicted of his sin. And it's from that conviction, that agony over his sin, in that moment, David wrote a psalm. The psalm he wrote is famously known as Psalm 51. Written in the aftermath of the encounter with Nathan. And this was what he wrote in the midst of conviction. Listen to David's words. Broken over his sin. Confronted. By a prophet, David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones broken, that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David was a man under conviction. And he wrote with conviction. You see, he was convicted of this sin. He knew of God's goodness and God's holiness and the joy of salvation. But his sin was evident to himself. Today we're going to see that the Holy Spirit convicts us. And as much as we want to talk about the, the pain of conviction... The, the, we talk about it in this so often negative sense, oh, I was convicted. And we talk about it like it's a bad thing. Right? Many, many a pastoral liar's line when they come out, you know, that's what we call it when you come out, oh, it's the best sermon I ever heard. Right? Many, many a pastoral liar's line has gone something like this where they say, oh, well, you really stepped on my toes today. And it's not said in the nice joking way like a lot of you say it, right? It's, it's said in, the, in a serious way. Like, why would you do this? And what I want you to see today that as the Holy Spirit convicts us, conviction is not a negative thing. In fact, it is something we should rejoice over. In John 16, we see Jesus teaching on the role of the Holy Spirit. Last week, we saw that the Spirit bears witness. This week, we're going to see that the Spirit convicts. So let's look at this text together. Again, John 16, the second half of verse 4 through 11. We'll pick up with Jesus' statement here, which says, I did not say these things. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you again this morning, and Lord, we thank you so much for the distinct honor and privilege of gathering together to worship your name. Lord, we thank you for the ability to sing these songs, to give to your kingdom, to confess what we believe. Lord, as we look into your word today, we ask that you would convict us. Lord, you would challenge us. Lord, you would encourage us in your truth. But Lord, throughout our time in your word today, we pray that you would just continually put before us the beauty of your grace. Lord, the infinite, matchless 
majesty of your glory. Father, that you would put before us your holiness and your goodness. That, Lord, we might both see our sin more clearly and see the standard that you've called us to. Lord, we recognize that none of this would be possible were it not for the atoning work of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. And we ask your blessing on this service in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we discussed the role of the Holy Spirit in bearing witness and calling and empowering us to bear witness, specifically in light of the coming hatred of the world, right? Jesus had told them, the world's going to hate you, and you need to bear witness, right? The Holy Spirit will help you with that. Today we see an emphasis on conviction, but first Jesus begins to explain some things to the disciples in preparation for what he's about to tell them. In in verse 4b here, we see that Jesus has only now revealed the hatred that is coming because he is going to the Father, He said, I I didn't tell you before because I was with you. Um, As we think about this, it's pretty clear throughout Jesus' ministry that the ire of the crowds, the ire of the Pharisees, the hatred of the world is directed toward who? It's directed toward Jesus, right? He's the one who they're plotting to kill. He is the one who they're going after. And so throughout his ministry so far, the hatred has been very clearly directed toward Christ. But now as he is going to the Father, he needs to prepare them because now the hatred is going to be directed toward his messengers, his disciples, his people. He says, I didn't tell you before because I was with you. But as he begins to tell them these things, we see here this distinct emotion that sorrow has filled their hearts. But Jesus says something here that's kind of peculiar, and I think think we need to break it down and understand what's going on here. Jesus says, none of you asks me where I am going. Now, as we begin to think about this, you guys are smart. I know you are, and I know even more than smart, you are attentive. And so you've been paying attention as we work through the Gospel of John. Back in John 13, verse 36, Peter asked, Lord... Where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And being, again, the attentive people you are, you know that back in John 14, verse 5, Thomas asked the same kind of question. said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And so my point here is being, again, kind of tongue-in-cheek, we've covered these questions. We've looked at these things. We see that twice in the Gospel of John, we see that the disciples have at least asked similar questions. Lord, where are you going? How can we know the way? And so this seems like a strange statement to us. I want to assure you, Jesus here is not lying or wrong. Jesus is getting at something much deeper. The point here behind Jesus' statement is the motive. You see, before, to this point, Peter and Thomas, when they asked, they asked with themselves in mind. Uh, If you go back and review the context of those situations, you can go back and listen to the sermons on those um, messages. We can uh, can dive into that deeper, but that's that's not what we're going to spend all our time. But I want you to understand that both of their questions were related to them knowing what would happen to them. Jesus, where are you going? But what what does that mean for me? What's going to happen to me? How can we go 
somewhere when we don't know the way? Both of these questions were about what would happen to them and not about what would happen to Jesus. They were concerned about themselves, and so when they're asking, where is he going, they don't care about that. What they're really asking is, what about us? And this is a a selfish and temporal concern. And now with all this talk of persecution and Jesus going away, they're filled with sorrow in their hearts. I believe part of this is because of an inward focus. Jesus says, you're really interested in looking about where I'm going and what that means. You're only interested in what it means for you right now. And we see that they have not been attentive Because back in John 14, verse 28, Jesus told them, You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Jesus has clearly told them, You don't need to be filled with sorrow, you need to be rejoicing. They're supposed to be rejoicing, but instead they're wallowing in sorrow because they are concerned again about the world hating them. And many of us, when we should be rejoicing, are wallowing in sorrow as well because the world hates us, and boo-hoo, that's so sad. And so Jesus repeats this idea. The same kind of idea he tells them back in John 14, he tells them here. He says, it's, it's, this is the truth. It's to your advantage, to your benefit, if I go, because I will send the Spirit, and when He comes, He will convict the world. You see, the Spirit we saw last week, it testifies to Christ and who He is. And this week, we see that when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world in three distinct ways. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, you can already tell that's going to be where we're going, right? This serves as the outline that we're going to discuss today. But before we do, let's look at that word, convict, conviction. If you do a quick Google search or look up the word conviction in a dictionary, you'll find that it's generally a legal term. Uh, Generally, this is something that's dealt with in terms of courts and, uh, you know, crime and things of that nature. Uh, And I remember this very easily because when I was growing up, we used to use the word convict to refer to prisoners, right? Like we'd drive down the road, we'd see them picking up trash, we'd say, oh, there are the convicts. The word convict means to find or prove to be guilty. So if someone is convicted in a court of law, right, that's, they're convicted if they're proved to be guilty. Theologically, right, and in terms of the biblical usage of the word here, the word means to prove, to convince, or to expose. And so it's all about revealing reality, exposing, proving, convincing. That's the nature of the word. And so when you are convicted about something, it's because it has been proven and exposed to you, right? Convictions are deeply held beliefs based on what, it, um, based on what is proven and exposed to us. Right? I, I think about this. I had a, a, a theological shift at the end of Bible college because uh, I had thought one thing my whole life. And then as I began to study the scriptures and really dive into it, man, the Bible was clear. And so the more I began looking at the, at the text, the more I began diving into the doctrine, the more that this was exposed to me, my conviction changed because I saw what was true in Scripture and not what I had just thought my whole life. So convictions right, are these things that we 
Again, beliefs that are deeply held because they've been proven and exposed to us. And so when we talk about the Spirit convicting us, we're talking about the Spirit proving, exposing, and convincing. And the text tells us three specific areas or topics which the Spirit will prove, expose, and convince. The first one is conviction concerning sin. We see this here in verse 9. It says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Jesus says the Spirit will convict concerning sin because they do not believe in Him. Now, first of all, I want us to be clear that there is a difference between acknowledging wrongdoing and being convicted of sin. There's a difference. I'll give you an example, right? The statement, everyone makes mistakes and no one is perfect. How often do we hear that statement around us? Pretty frequently, right? The world loves that statement. Everyone makes mistakes. No one is perfect. This is an acknowledgement of imperfection. We, again, make mistakes. We aren't perfect. But there's a big difference there from the statement, I am a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, and I have sinned against God. These are two different things. Right? That is conviction of sin. Sin is not just a mistake or an imperfection. It is a rebellion against God. Anyone can say no one is perfect, But only those under the conviction of the Holy Spirit can cry out, I have sinned against God, Jesus, save me. And so what the Spirit does is point out, expose, and prove that we are sinful. But not just that we're committing sin out into the void against whoever, but that we have sinned specifically against God. What did David say? Against you, I have sinned. Here we see in this text, again, it's it's sin toward God. The Spirit exposes our sin to us so that we will see our need of a Savior. The Spirit points out our sin in comparison to God's holiness. Again, so often this happens in relation to the Word of God. The Spirit points out our sin. Again, uh, Hebrews 4.12 famously says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So often the way the Spirit convicts us of sin is that when we hear the Word of God preached and we see we do not live up to the standard. We hear the word, maybe the preacher's preaching on a specific topic, and, and we have sinned in that way, right? The Spirit is using the word to convict us, right? Like, I knew a, I knew a person who told me um, it just seemed like every time they went to church, whatever they were, the preacher was preaching on the same topic. They were in different verses all over, but the preacher's preaching on the same topic, and it was one that they were struggling with. And the more they began to see this preaching on the subject, the more they realized, I am sinful. The Spirit in that moment is using the Word of God to point out and expose our sin. And so if you're in a sermon and you think the preacher is stepping all over my toes, right? You think he might be calling me out. Don't blame me. Don't blame the preacher. Take it up with the Spirit who is convicting you. See, the Spirit's the one who does the toe step and not the preacher. I can't manufacture conviction. Lord knows there were times in my ministry when I tried, right? I tried to just write some sermon that would make people feel all kinds of ways. It doesn't work. 
I can't make you change and see your sin. Only the Spirit can. Only the Spirit can. And so if we're in a, in a situation, again, where we're hearing the Word of God and we, we are convicted, we need to be thankful that the Spirit is working. But the text says the Spirit is convicting people. Why? Because they do not believe in Jesus. Every single sin starts with unbelief. It does. We talked about this last week in regards to the first commandment, right? Ultimately, every sin is a failure to believe God, His Word, and His Lordship. Every sin. And when that happens, sin follows. We think about this. You know, if I am tempted to do something wrong and I do it, right? Let's say I am at the store and I'm tempted to steal something. What happens in my, in, in my internal situation here? I have to ask myself, I, I know thou shalt not steal, but I have to ask myself, do I believe that or not? great example of this is in Genesis 3, in the fall account. Adam and Eve listen to the serpent. They choose to believe Satan and doubt God. They believe the snake's words, and they don't believe what God said. And what happens? They disobey God and they sin against Him. And immediately the text says that their eyes are open to their sin and they knew that they were naked and they were ashamed and they do what? Genesis 3, 8-10 through 10 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But God called to the man and said to him, Where are you. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. You see, God knew exactly where Adam was. Okay, the big question that always comes up in that text. Uh, he wanted Adam to say it, to acknowledge where Adam was. But Adam hid because he was afraid because he knew that he had sinned against God. This is what I call the first conviction. In Scripture, right? This is, this is the first moment of conviction that we find. Adam is terrified. He's hiding because he is ashamed. And he knew that he had sinned against God. His sin is apparent to both him and Eve. And it's definitely apparent to God. Adam's sin is exposed. And we see this conviction occur. The Bible's full of such stories. What about Isaiah in Isaiah 6, right? When he sees the majesty and holiness of God, what is his response? Isaiah 6, 5 says, Woe is me, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, Isaiah was, again, convicted of his sin, but the stories continue. And let, let's move to the New Testament where we can make, some, again, some clear application of what we're talking about here. We see this on full display in Acts 2 at Pentecost. And so often we focus only on the fact that the people heard the sermon in their own tongue, right? We focus on, on the tongues and we talk about the power of the Spirit, but we miss out on this amazing miracle of conviction that occurs. Jesus has ascended. Peter is now preaching. This is the coming of the Holy Spirit to them. And they're, they're, he's preaching this famous Pentecost sermon, and everyone hears it in their native tongue. And what happens? Acts 2.37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. What had Peter just told them? Well, immediately before this, he tells them, You crucified Jesus. The people in the crowd were cut to the heart by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit convicted them of their sin, and they asked, What do we do? And we know that this group of people would be baptized. This is the, the, the basis, the foundation of the church as far as the people moving forward. You see, the Spirit convicting us of sin is a glorious thing. Earlier I said, don't blame the preacher, blame the Spirit when your toes are stepped on. What we should do is thank the Spirit. Because if the Spirit never convicts us of our sin and our need for a Savior, we would never be saved. If you don't believe you're a sinner, then you don't believe you need a Savior. We've all heard this, this kind of evangelistic uh, phrase that's happened before. It says, you know, before we can get them saved, we have to get them to see that they're sinners. And this is, this is the idea here. The Spirit has to convict them of their sin because, again, if you don't believe you're a sinner, then what in the world do I need to be saved from? And as much as we like to think that people know they are a sinner, there are so many people out here in this world who you go and talk to them and say, I'm doing perfectly fine. They'll make that acknowledgement. I said, well, no one's perfect, but I'm doing pretty good. I'm as close as you're going to get. (laughs) We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners in the hands of a holy God. We have all rebelled against our heavenly Father. According to Jesus, if we've ever hated, we have murdered. If we've ever lusted, we are adulterers. We've lied, stolen, cheated, cursed, etc. We need to recognize that. It is reality. And when the Spirit convicts us of our sin, we need to do what David did and say, I have sinned against you, God. Create in me a clean heart. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Save me. For those of us who are saved, this conviction of sin is part of the sanctification process. If you're a lost person and you say, you know, you realize I'm a sinner and you need to be saved. But if you're a person who believes in Jesus, you've been following Christ, and, and the conviction of sin is not that I am a, a lost, dead sinner, but it's I'm convicted that you still have the sin that keeps nagging you. Rejoice! It's part of growing in God's grace and becoming more like Christ. And so when the Spirit points out a sin in your life, Don't try to sweep it under the rug or live in denial. Rejoice and say, yes, Spirit, I am sinful in this area. Help me to put this sin to death. Instead, what happens to so many of us is we spend so much time living in denial, right, and saying, oh, you know what, I'm fine. I'm saved from my sins. And in this conviction, I'm feeling like, ah. And we don't ever worry about it. The conviction of sin in our life is a blessed thing. Rejoice in conviction. This means that the Spirit is working in you. If you feel nothing about your sin, that is way worse and way more concerning. Rejoice for the conviction of sin by the Spirit. We need to move on. The second thing here that we see, the second area, is the conviction concerning righteousness. Here in verse 10. 
Here the Spirit convicts concerning righteousness because Christ is going to the Father and they will see him no more. Now, I have to be clear with you. This verse is a lot like an onion in that there are many layers to what is being said here. Uh, Christ is going away to the Father and we just keep peeling this thing back and finding more and more stuff here. Christ is going away to the Father and he goes to the Father by root of crucifixion for our sins. Where even though he had lived a sinless life, for, uh, even though he had been perfect, all of the wrath and punishment for our sins was put on him and all of his righteousness was given to his people. And then he was buried in the grave, but on the third day he arose victorious over death and the grave and he would minister and then ascend into heaven. That's the route Jesus takes to going to the Father. And this is important because the resurrection is proof that Jesus is who he said he is. The resurrection is proof that he is righteous. And Jesus' life served to be the picture of righteousness. He perfectly fulfilled every aspect of the law. He is the image of the invisible God. And so when we wonder what does righteousness look like, we look to Christ as the picture of righteousness. Now what does that have to do with conviction about righteousness? We see, since the disciples had been looking to Jesus as the picture of righteousness, they would need to know how to move forward and live that out once he returned to the Father. And so Jesus is sending the Spirit to convict them in two distinct ways. First, to convict them of their lack of righteousness. Now, this is essentially uh, the same as what we talked about a moment ago under sin. Righteousness is perfect holiness and rightness. If we are a sinner then by definition, we are unrighteous. So the conviction about righteousness here is not just that we are sinners and unrighteous, but the second element here is that we are convicted about Christ's righteousness. You see, the Spirit not only convicts us that we are unrighteous and that we are sinful and that we are fallen. Right? That alone, with, with no other part of the message, is pretty sad, right? We are sinful, we're fallen, that's it. The second part of this conviction here is amazing and beautiful and glorious because the Spirit convicts us that Christ is righteous and he has a gracious gift of righteousness to those who believe. You see, the Spirit exposes and convinces us that Jesus is holy, he is truly man and truly God. And the Spirit convinces us that the only way to the Father is through Christ. We are to repent of our sins and trust in him. Now, here we're looking at the conviction of sin and righteousness separately because of the way that the text looks at them, right? The text says concerning sin and then concerning righteousness, and so we want to do justice to those. And because really they are two different forms of conviction. But often what we see is that in our life, these show up together simultaneously, almost instantaneously. Many of us, when we realized we were a sinner by God's grace, we immediately recognized that Christ is the only Savior. He's our only hope. Again, the Bible's full of these stories, right? The people at Pentecost, what do they do? They repent, they believe in Christ, they're baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch, riding along in his chariot, he, he doesn't understand the Scriptures. Philip explains them to him. The eunuch is convicted of his sin in Christ's lordship. He repents, believes, and is what? Baptized. In Acts 16, Paul is preaching in Macedonia, and he goes to preach in a place of prayer. And there's a woman named Lydia who's a Jew, a worshiper of God, and she hears Paul's sermon. But notice how that is described. 
Acts 16, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. After the Lord opened her heart, Lydia was baptized and they meet in her home. You see, the Lord opened her heart to the truth that Paul was preaching. Well, what was Paul preaching? Thankfully, Paul always tells us what he was preaching. We know well from his letters that the message Paul preached everywhere was that Jesus is Lord, Christ, and Christ crucified, the mystery of the gospel. We are saved by grace. Paul preached that Christ is righteous, that he was crucified and rose again, and that salvation is only possible by grace through faith in Jesus. The Spirit convicted those people. And if we are believers here today, we know that the Spirit convicted us of Christ's righteousness as well. This is a necessity. We do not come on our own. Paul teaches in his letters to the Corinthians that the gospel is veiled unless the Spirit convicts us and opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel. And so again, we rejoice in the fact that God saved us and opened our eyes and we pray to the Lord of the harvest to open eyes and hearts to the truth of the gospel. That Jesus is Lord, that he is righteous, that he is who he says he is. The world will try to tell you all kinds of things about Jesus. And, and here's the thing about it, and this is we get into conviction here, this is very important for us to think about. For years, the world wants to deny the things of Scripture, right? Things like ancient cities and civilizations, And yet what we find is that for years there have been Bible-believing people who believed in these things and insisted, no, the Bible is correct and true. Only to find out years later that the people who were saying that it was wrong were wrong. And then we uncover some new evidence and the Bible is proved truthful, right? Again, the Hittites are a perfect example. Oh, the Hittites don't exist. Then we find their capital city buried in the sand. It's massive. It's exactly where the Bible said it was and exactly what the Bible said it was. My point is this. The world will tell us all kinds of things. The, the experts will say, oh, well, you know, you can't believe. You know, there was the, the Bart Ehrman movement on the way back. The historic Jesus is none of this stuff. That's garbage. But the reason that they fall into this trap is that they are not convicted of the righteousness of Christ. And so for those of us who are, our job is to hold fast to our convictions and to pray that the Lord would convict those around us. Thirdly and finally here, we see the conviction concerning judgment in verse 11. Why? Because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, we need to break that down a bit. Again, the ruler of this world here, uh, this is an identifier for Satan. This is not to say that he is ruling over us, because that is not so. Christ is Lord, and he is Lord of all. God is sovereign over all things and ordains or allows everything that comes to pass. And so this is not a designation that gives the devil some sort of ruling authority. Rather, this is a designation that shows that the devil is a captain of a doomed vessel. The devil does, however, in a sense, lead the wicked, and that's where this language comes from. In John 8, we remember that Jesus told them, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. It was a murderer from the beginning, and it does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so what we see is that the world and lost people are of their father, the devil, and they follow him. 
Now again, the Spirit convicts of judgment in two ways. The Spirit convicts us, one, that there is a judgment, and two, that evil will be destroyed and judged. And this is important in in many ways, but first of all, if Satan is judged, so too will be those who follow him. The Spirit reminds us that there will be a judgment. Now, in my academic career, I've taken a few classes that were... um, we kind of call them pass, like, like pass-fail even is not a good word for it. But these were classes that had no evaluation. You just sat in there, and you, got, you, you were good as long as you were there, right? In sports world, we call this exhibition matches, right? Like, I hate preseason football and baseball because they mean nothing. In soccer, they even call them friendlies because there's no competition in those games. This life is none of those things. It's not a friendly It's not an exhibition. The Spirit convicts us that this life is not just for kicks and giggles, but it has real consequences and we will be judged. And the basis of that judgment is whether or not we are righteous and without sin. Again, we know for a fact that we are sinful and that none are righteous, no, not one. So apart from Christ, we are judged and condemned already, but with Christ, we are already declared holy and free and justified. But don't think for one moment that the judgment will be avoided or that you can squeak by on your own good merits. Our best works are filthy rags. And so apart from Christ, we will not come through that judgment in a happy way. We won't squeak by on good behavior. Hear the words of 2 Peter 2, 4-9, which make this very clear for us. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. See, the Lord knows and the Lord has told us a judgment is coming. Don't be, don't be surprised. He didn't spare the angels. He didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't spare the ancient world. He will not spare us. Unless we are in Christ. Because as we see here, in all of these situations, the, the Lord has shown grace to his people. He preserved Noah, he rescued Lot. As we conclude here, judgment always follows conviction. Always. Legally. There's the conviction and then there is the judgment. How will you be judged? Righteous in Christ or doomed with the devil? Uh, final note here, this judgment talk is often seen as a completely negative thing and something to be afraid of and just all gloom, doom, and despair. And I just want to caution you as Christians against just looking at judgment with fear or, or with sadness. The Lord is going to judge wickedness and punish it. It will be eradicated from the kingdom of God. No more tears, no more pain. 
And so judgment for the believer is an encouragement that wickedness will be no more. But again, for the wicked, you are in a dangerous spot. Repent of your sins, turn to Christ, follow him, and be saved by his grace. The Spirit convicts in all of these areas. and Ultimately, everything we've talked about today serves to convict us of something else. All of these, though not mentioned specifically in this text, serve the purpose of convicting us of God's exceeding glory. You see, God's sovereignty is purposeful. Everything happens for God's glory. Everything occurs to expose His glory. And so when we are convicted concerning our sin, it reveals God's glory because it reveals His holiness and His goodness and His graciousness in saving sinners. When we're convicted of His righteousness, it reveals again His glory because He is perfect and good and we are not. When we're convicted of the judgment, it again reveals His glory in that He is a just God who will not tolerate wickedness or evil. And so conviction by the Spirit serves to expose and convince us and prove to us the glorious grace of the Father. When we are convicted of these things, we cannot help but be convicted that God is great and worthy to be praised. And so, friends, maybe today the Spirit is convicting you of something. Whether you are lost and being convicted of sin and the truthfulness of the gospel, or you're a believer who's convicted about a nagging sin in your life, heed the conviction of the Spirit. Turn from your sin and to Christ. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you today, and Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Father, we thank you for the conviction that you have given each of us. Lord, for convicting us of our sins. Father, we pray that today that you would open hearts and minds to see our sin. Lord, to see your righteousness and to know that a judgment is coming. And Father, we pray today that you would help us you would enable us to trust in your great grace. Lord, to put this sin to death. Father, we ask that your will be done as we worship you now. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.